we're continuing our series today called Thriving in a Broken World. And I don't know about you, but I probably know about you a little bit, but I really need this series. I mean, our world feels really broken right now, doesn't it? And it's easy, I think, to turn toward despair. But you know what? Anybody can live in despair. It's not difficult to do. Just turn on the television, right? Read a little morning news. Spend a little time looking outside your window. But followers of Jesus, you see, of all people, should not live in despair. But even in a broken world, and I guess I would say especially in a broken world, followers of Jesus should thrive. But you know what? We're going to need some strategies. We're going to need some help doing that. And so we're landing in the Old Testament book of Daniel for this series. I hope you've been following along in our daily scripture. We'll walk you all the way through the book and the book of 1 Peter as a kicker, as a bonus. And though I have to admit this has never been one of my favorite books, the book of Daniel. I mean, there's six cool chapters I remember from Sunday school, and then it gets all crazy up in there with like visions and prophecies and scary stuff. But in these last few months, as I've been reading and rereading, especially these first six chapters of Daniel, I've fallen in love with this book, with this story. And I've fallen in love with this man, Daniel, who I read was actually probably a teenager when we first start the book. So then that's kind of creepy that I fell in love with him. So I kind of backed that off just a little bit. But he's become something more to me than just a character on a flannel board in Sunday school or or some guy in the VeggieTales Series, And I hope the same can happen to you during the course of this series. So if you were here last week and you heard Jeff kick this off, you'll remember that he talked about how in the Old Testament, God was continually talking to his people and telling them that they were slipping away from him. He could see that they were seeking after other gods. But in his kindness and his patience, God continually warned his people to turn back to him or said to them that there would be consequences. But his people refused to listen. And they said to God, you know, thanks so much for freeing us from slavery with your mighty right hand and for leading us through the wilderness to get to the promised land and for being our God. But you know what? Things are going pretty well for us right now and we're a tad busy doing things our way. Does it sound familiar? So God handed a pretty good subset of his people over, so starts the book of Daniel, to a wicked nation called Babylon and a wicked king named King Nebuchadnezzar who ransacked Jerusalem, who raided the Jewish temple, who took off with the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's young men, including Daniel, And three of his friends were captured and placed in the palace to be trained for service to Babylon's wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar. Or Some of us are saying Nebi because saying King Nebuchadnezzar over and over in the morning is is, uh, kind of enough for, you know, a little hairball to get stuck in your throat. So we start this story of Daniel in exile. And in exile, when a human being or a group of people is in exile, they find themselves in a long, often forced absence away from their home or their country. To be in exile means you have been swept away from all that you know and love and you have found yourself in a foreign land. And I wonder this morning if any of you feel like you're in a sort of an exile of your own. 
in a land you'd never thought you'd find yourself in. Divorced or widowed or like broken from your family somehow. Maybe, maybe you're homesick. You're just lost. I mean, I think, you know, I've talked to enough people here. Perhaps your marriage feels like a kind of an exile or your job or your loss of a job. Feels like you're in a foreign land. Or maybe this is your first year of high school or your first year of college and it feels like you're out of your league somehow. You know, or maybe for some of us, the culture that we grew up in and and we're young adults in is just gone. And we don't really recognize where we're living. Some of us are in exile this morning and we feel trapped and we feel like we're in hostile territory and we don't know what we are supposed to do now. Well, Daniel knows what it's like to find yourself in exile. And though Daniel had no choice about whether or not he was going to go into exile in Babylon, he did have a choice. And he had a choice over and over and over about how he was going to live in that place of exile. And even in a foreign land under the power of a wicked king who worshipped all kinds of evil gods, Daniel found ways to stay connected to the one true God and to practice faith, trust, hope, and wisdom, attributes which you're going to hear over these coming weeks, all while refusing to be in an adversarial relationship with his captors. It's so important for you to hear. Instead of being in a conflicting relationship with his enemies, Daniel served them, he showed respect for them, and he did good to them and for them. And what's so amazing about this idea, all the way back in the Old Testament, is that 600 years later, The very first followers of Jesus were called to live this exact way in their hostile world, in their exile, in the first century. And you and I today are called to live also this exact same way as followers of Jesus in our broken world, in our exile right now. See, part of what Daniel teaches us is that our obedience to God is not limited by our circumstances. Hear that. Our obedience to God is never limited by our circumstances. Daniel was captured. He was possibly castrated, which Jeff talked about last week. That's awful. He was renamed after an idol god. He was forced to serve a wicked king, and Daniel held firm. He honored God in less than ideal circumstances, and I believe we can too, even in exile. And one of the most profound ways he did that was by living in God-honoring humility, which is what I want to talk to you about today. If you've heard my last teaching, you understand that I also taught about humility then. I wonder what it is that God is trying to get across to me that finds me teaching this topic over and over. It could be a whole year of it. I don't know. And, you know, we often think of humility as, as mostly about how we think about ourselves. And we're told in Scripture that we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment. So we are to have a right and true view of ourselves. But what Daniel teaches us 
is that at its heart, humility has way more to do with how we treat other people. How we think about ourselves is the place from which how we treat other people should flow. And what Daniel teaches is that humility is either an action or it is nothing. Humility is either an action or it is nothing. So let's look at how Daniel did this, demonstrated this. I want to look at a story in Daniel chapter 2. Jeff mostly taught out of chapter 1 last week. And I want you to listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 2. And I, I want you to remember this. He's a captive and he's been trained to serve the king. This is not his home. This is not his religion. And so chapter 2 starts with poor King Nebi. He had a troubling dream, and he couldn't sleep. I don't want that slide up yet. There we go. Thank you. So he asked. He had this troubling dream. So he asked for his country's magicians and emperors uh, and enchanters and sorcerers to come see him. So they all came to the king. And I picture this as kind of like a Harry Potter movie kind of gathering with the hats and the wands and stuff. And then he basically drops this bomb on them. He says, I need you super magical people to interpret my dream. But since you're so smart and profess to have so many supernatural powers, I also want you to tell me what my dream was, even though I'm not going to tell it to you. And if you can't do that, I am going to rip you limb from limb and smash your houses. That's a short fuse. Come on. So long story continues with the magical people basically saying, we can't do what you want, King Nebi. Only gods can do what you're asking. So listen to what King Nebi does after he learns this from his magical people, that they can't do this one magical thing. Now verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So now he's going to kill everybody. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And when Daniel learned of this, when he learned that they were coming to put him to death because the magical guys couldn't tell King Nebi his dream, he was like, what's up with Nebi? Why is he so crabby? And the executioner explained the story to Daniel, and Daniel went to his friends, his friends who knew God, the God of Israel, and he said, beg God to have mercy on me to show me the king's dream. And God answers their prayers. And so Daniel squares up his young teenage shoulders and he says to the guard, take me to the king. And Daniel goes to the king to tell Nebi his dream. And instead of taking credit for being super magic and the wisest of the wise, he gives all the credit to God. Listen to what it says. This is what Daniel says when he goes to the king to tell him his dream. Daniel replied, no wise men, Enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as these were lying in your bed are these. And then he goes on to tell King Nebi exactly what his dream was and exactly what it means. He served this evil king in humility. And then he gave all the credit to God. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar falls to his knees. Go read this in chapter 2 and says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And Dan, the man, got a promotion, which is really just kind of a side bonus to this story. See, just like with Daniel, for followers of Jesus, humility does not mean serving just those we like to serve, just those who we know like us. Biblical humility is even serving those people we'd rather not serve. Remember that even Jesus washed Judas' feet. This kind of humility plays itself out in action. This kind of humility that serves not just those we love, but who serves even our enemies, that kind of humility, that kind of service is what earns us the credibility to speak of our God, especially in exile. We can serve rude bosses, mean family members, snotty neighbors, the coach who won't play your child, even though Everyone can see your child is an Olympic dream. The professor who's arrogant, the awful roommate, the co-worker, the brusque salesperson, the kind of humility that serves even those who feel like enemies is what earns us credibility to speak the name of Jesus. And sometimes we get this so, so wrong. We think we must speak, we deserve to speak without earning any credibility at all. And too often, when we engage with those who don't yet know Jesus, rather than serve them, we think it's our job to be adversarial. This horrifying story happened to a friend of mine in January. Do you remember back in January when we were going through the caucuses? Remember that all the way back? My friend Gita uh, who, and her husband, uh, my friend Gita, who happens to be Hindu and from India, but she's lived in America for years and years, was headed to her party's caucus, um, but ended up at the other party's caucus. And this is kind of typical. And uh, so she started to walk in and realized partway that she was at the wrong place. But she turned around and noticed an elderly woman who was being let out of her car, who was having a very difficult time walking into her uh, Gita's opposing party's caucus. So typical of Gita, she went over to the woman and asked if she needed some help and took her arm and walked her all the way in to the caucus, knowing that this would then make Gita late to her caucus and possibly maybe even miss, miss getting there. And so as she was helping the woman in so kindly, uh, the woman turned to my friend Gita and said to her, well, where do you go to church? And Which is an interesting question, isn't it? I suppose in Iowa you just get to do that. And Gita said very kindly, well, you know, I don't go to church. I'm a Hindu. And the woman who Gita is serving <laughs> looked at her again and said, well, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> this is not the first time this story has played itself out in Gita's life. I probably don't need to tell you how my friend felt.
Daniel lived in exile, a land that was not his own. And he was held captive there, but his captor needed help. And Daniel didn't condemn him. He didn't preach at him. He didn't tell the king he was going to hell. He simply showed up, prayed, served, asked God for help, and gave God the credit and served the king. Dan is the man. And oh, that God would make me more like him. Second thing Daniel did was that he showed respect. He showed respect. When those guards, the king's guards, went to get Daniel after the king blew a complete gasket and told Daniel, you know what, sorry, because the king's own magic people didn't know his dream, you and your friends are going to have to die. Please come with me. (laughs) So look at what Daniel did. Chapter 2, starting with verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch, remember Arioch is going to be the executioner, explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so he might interpret the dream for him. Picture this, Daniel is speaking to his enemy, the commander of the king's guard. Really, he and his friend's potential executioner. And the story tells us that he treated him with wisdom and tact. He treated him with great respect. Have you ever thought about that word, respect? I put that up just so you could think about it a minute. Respect. Respect. Spect is, is the root word for, for, for our word spectator and spectacles. It is about seeing something. It is about looking at someone. And so to respect is really to look again at someone or something. It's to look at them in a new way, to see them with fresh eyes. Or in Daniel's case, I believe that it has to do with looking at even his enemy as a human being. No matter how led astray that enemy is, Daniel was looking at him as a human being made in the image of God, even beneath their evil exterior and behavior. And because of that, you see, Daniel doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't try to go toe-to-toe with this guard. He doesn't tell the guard what a coward he is. He didn't try to kill him. He didn't call him mean names. He didn't even tell him he was going to hell. No, he treated his potential executioner with respect. Can you imagine this? My friends, in a world, in a culture right now where Christians are too often known for bad-mouthing people with whom we disagree, what if instead we showed Daniel-like respect for everyone, no matter what? We are called by Scripture to do this. The Apostle Peter, writing hundreds of years later to a church in their own exile, makes this command. 
1 Peter 2, verse 17. Unequivocal. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Show proper respect for everyone. Even when you are in exile. A couple years ago, it was around, it was somewhere in the winter, we were, I was getting my car washed and I was in line to pay and behind me was a woman named Mrs. Afridi. Mrs. Afridi has been my husband's parents' neighbor for, I would guess, 30 to 40 years. And I paid the attendant the money for my car wash, and the attendant said to me, Merry Christmas, and I said, Merry Christmas, and I moved down the line. Mrs. Afridi came up to pay. Now, Mrs. Afridi happens to be Muslim. And the attendant said to Mrs. Afridi, after Mrs. Afridi paid, Merry Christmas. And then my ear got like this big. I was trying to pretend like I was stalled out, but I really wanted to hear how this was going to transpire. And so... Mrs. Afridi took the car, car wash attendant's hands in her hands after she paid her. And she held her hands and she looked her right in the eye. I watched this. And she said to her, I want you to have the merriest of Christmases too. And then we walked down to collect our cars. And I couldn't help myself. I had to ask Mrs. Afridi while we were waiting our cars. I said, can you please tell me, how is that for you? How are you able to be so kind when people tell you a Muslim Merry Christmas? Do you see what I was really asking her, though? I was asking her, how do you live when sometimes I'd imagine it feels like you are in exile? And this is what she said to me. She said, Alice, I love this country. I love my friends and neighbors who celebrate Christmas. I understand what an important holiday it is to Christians. And so when someone wishes me a Merry Christmas, instead of being rude or turning away, I express Merry Christmas back to them as a sign of kindness and warmth and a deep hope that they have a beautiful holiday and Christmas season with their families. She respected that car wash attendant even while she sometimes feels like she's in exile, and it was so lovely and beautiful. She respected another person with whom she could have been easily offended and disrespectful. I just wonder about the power of Christians unleashed in this world doing that same thing. What might happen? The last thing that Daniel did And the story, and I love it, is that he did good. He did good. I love this quote from the Thriving in Babylon book that so much of this teaching comes from in this series. This is what the writer says. Daniel and his friends never treated their captors as enemies. They followed the advice of Jesus long before it was given. I think the word advice there is too soft. They followed the command of Jesus long before it was given. They loved their enemies and they did good to them. Go back in the story just a little bit with me. Remember all those magical guys, the Harry Potter guys that came to the king and they couldn't tell King Nebi what his dream was before they could interpret it? Daniel saved their lives. 
Daniel saved their lives. Remember, King Nebi was in a fit. He was going to rip these guys limb from limb, and if that wasn't enough, he was going to smash their houses. He was going to kill everybody just because the magic guys couldn't tell him what his dream was. And remember, Daniel asks for an audience with the king, but first he goes to ask his friends for help. Listen to what it says in verse 17 of chapter 2. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are going to become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, FYI. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he's kind of lumping all those other guys in that mix. God answers their prayers and reveals the dream to Daniel. And then look what Daniel does with that. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. So he's talking to his executioner again. And he said to them, to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Those magical men claimed to have power only God could have. And Daniel fought to save their lives when he could have, you know he could have, he could have so easily thrown those men under the King Nebi bus and backed that thing up a few times. All he would have had to say was, kill them but save me. But he didn't. He saved their lives. Do you ever wonder about how those wise men, sorcerers, enchanters felt about Daniel and his God after they learned that he saved their lives? Don't you kind of wonder if, if after they learned of this, if they too, like King Nebi, fell to their knees and said to Daniel, surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. What could this broken world look like if starting this very day, regardless of how deep our exile and how far out of our own land we feel, what if we started to pour out love and goodness on those who were opposed to us? On those who are even opposed to what we believe, which is who Daniel's enemies were. What if we started to pour out so much love and goodness on those who are opposed to all we hold dear? They could not resist taking a look at who it is that we worshipped. Can you imagine an army of followers of Jesus not armed for battle? See, the sword has never really helped spread Jesus' message throughout history. But what if instead we were all armed with the love of Jesus? and a never-failing trust in our Father, and a deep, heartfelt desire to do good, to be like Daniel. No matter what, no matter how trapped, lost, homesick, exiled you find yourself, no matter how hostile the culture around you sometimes feels, true freedom 
See, the kind of freedom that gave Daniel the quiet confidence he had, that kind of freedom can be found by doing what God calls us to do. Sometimes the simplest of things, no matter what our circumstances, we can serve, we can respect, and we can do good to everyone around us. Not to make ourselves better than anyone, not to make ourselves right with God. That's been done through Jesus. No, we do these things because they can set our souls free. And we do them because this is how we thrive in exile. Dan, you see, is the man. And he can teach us how to thrive in a broken world. Let's pray. God, one of the most profound commandments that you have given followers of Jesus is to love, to do good, to serve even our enemies. And yet, God, it's so much easier for us to just hate our enemies (laughs) and to love and serve just those people who like us. The problem with that strategy is that it's never really earned us any credibility to speak the name of Jesus, which is really the only thing that can offer hope to a broken world. So help us, God. Help us to go home and read chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Help us to take our marching orders from Jesus, but to see these lived out in the lives of this brave young man. And help us start today, right now, this very moment, to know... That even in a world that doesn't feel like our home, we can serve and respect and do good in the name of Jesus. Amen.